What happened when people encountered Jesus? One thing is for sure, no one stayed the same. Skeptics, outcasts, politicians, and religious leaders alike all had strong reactions to him. Some walked away, but some believed. And in those lives, we see the hand of God filling in who they were meant to be. We see the rough outline of the lives given color and shape and form and made into something altogether unique and new and beautiful. No one who ever encountered Jesus was ever the same. For each one, it all started the same way. Meeting him face to face. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Such a blessing to be here with you. Just a special welcome to all of our guests and visitors. So glad to have you here. My wife actually mentioned to me during the, uh, the announcement for the retreat, she said, well, I think she thought it would be a good idea for all the husbands to actually send their wives with new diamonds, since this is sort of a theme. I don't know how realistic that is. Don't hold your breath. That being said, it's a great idea. <laughs> great idea. All right, well, this morning, of course, we're in the middle of a series called Face to Face. We'll actually conclude it next week, looking in the life of Paul. But this morning, we are fast-forwarding to the end of Jesus' life to look at the very first person that Jesus encounters after he's resurrected, after he's been brought back from the dead. And it's actually a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary, in a very real sense was the very first Christian, and therefore she's a paradigm of source for anyone who's looking to follow and encounter Jesus as well. And so let's look at our scripture reading. It's going to be from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had not reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And that's God's word this morning. This morning we're going to see in the passage three things. First, Mary's heart, Mary's hold, and finally, 
Mary's hope. You ready? Let's begin. Here we go. Number one. Thank you, Galen. All right. Let's begin. Where are we? Well, of course, as we read in the passage, we're here at the tomb of Jesus, at the place where his body had been laid after he was taken down from the Roman cross on which he was executed. It's Sunday morning here. It's the first day of the Jewish week. And one woman in particular named Mary Magdalene or Mary the Magdalene in the early morning has come to look into Jesus's tomb. And this is what she sees And this is what she does. In verse 1, it says that she came to the tomb. And verse 2 says, so then she came running. She went back running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So she sees the stone has been rolled away, and she immediately goes back to Peter and John and says this. She says, someone's stolen the body. So then later she comes back to the tomb again, and this is what happened on her second visit. It says, as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Then it says, she says, it, it says she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. So watch this. Mary sees an empty tomb. She sees two angels in the tomb. She sees Jesus himself, but did not realize it was him. Why is this? How could this be? What's happening in Mary's heart? Well, right from the get-go, the point of the narrative that John, the gospel writer, is pressing upon us is one truth in two parts. It's this. Christian faith is both impossible and rational. Christian faith is impossible and rational. Let me show you what I mean. When I say that faith in Jesus is impossible, I don't mean that it's something that can never happen. No, quite the contrary. I mean it's never going to happen on your own solely out of your ability to conjure it up and produce it. In other words, faith throughout the Bible is described as a gift. Now, of course, there are different theological perspectives about this. You may know there are multiple varying views on what it means for faith to be a gift, but all parts of Christianity agree on this, that no one can produce saving faith in Jesus solely through their own ability. All right? The Bible says that in every person lies a kind of spiritual blindness. We can see the truth, but we can't necessarily connect it to ourselves without some kind of divine intervention. What we see with Mary here, or to paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, there's no one who just finds God on their own. And the gospel writer John, can you see, is pressing this up against our ears right here in this story. This is the very first person to encounter the risen Jesus, a person who's known him, who has heard him speak and has spoken to him for years. And what happens? She totally misses him totally misses him. Her heart's blinded the truth. She's standing in front of the greatest evidence in history for the resurrected Christ, but she can't see it. How can this be? Think about it. Jesus had preached and predicted his resurrection for years. In Mark 8, 9, and 10, for example, we have three blatant and direct predictions Jesus gives for what would happen to him. Everyone knew about it. He talked about it. He preached it so much. The Romans stationed a guard at his tomb. They had heard about it to make sure no one could steal the body and just invent some sort of crazy resurrection claim, right? Everyone knew this is what he had said. But now, when Mary comes to the tomb, 
What's your first instinct, huh? Is it, yes, I knew it. He was right all along. Woo, just like I expected. No, no, it's tears, crushing disappointment, and they've stolen the body. In other words, Mary and the disciples didn't believe he was going to rise any more than anyone else did. And now, Mary's standing in front of the greatest evidence for the resurrection anyone could ever ask for, the body of Jesus breathing and talking to her, and she can't see it. She can't grasp what's going on. Her heart's blinded. She needs divine intervention to see and believe the truth, and the same is true of every human being. Thomas Nagel is a prominent atheist American philosopher, and he wrote a book a few years ago called The Last Word, and he explores the concept of, wait for it, epistemology. There you go. It's the question of how we know what we know. And in a moment of incredible honesty, I'm grateful he wrote this, he admitted this. He said, quote, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I'm curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. All right, let's pause here for a moment and explore this. So everyone knows, and of course, skeptics love to slam Christians with the very true thought, very true thought, that there are powerful reasons for a person wishing God to be true. Skeptics say this, maybe this is you. They'll say, you know, Christianity, faith, religion, it's just the ultimate form of wish fulfillment. People need comfort, right? People need hope. They need hope of an afterlife. And so they, they, they need to believe, and there's meaning for their life, so they just believe there's a God who exists to comfort them. For some people, therefore, the existence of God could just be a form of wish fulfillment. But did you hear what Dr. Nagel said? He said, disbelieving in God, being a committed skeptic, is for him a form of wish fulfillment. See, he doesn't want God to be true. He's not as much interested in the evidence as what the evidence means. What the evidence means, right? As he is in his own desire for God to not exist. Why? Because in the same way that God's existence can give some people what they want, God's non-existence gives people what they want, which he admits control over his own life. Control over his own life. Nagel says, listen, I don't believe in God because I don't want a cosmic authority in my life. He says, I'm not objective. It's not that there's evidence. I just don't like what the evidence means. So let me ask you, therefore, what would Dr. Nagel need to believe in Jesus? Hmm? More evidence? No. He would need divine intervention for his spiritual blindness. And what does Mary need right here? Hmm? Does she need more evidence? No. How can she possibly have any more? She needs divine intervention. She needs something to bring the evidence to life. She needs a gift. And faith is a gift, and it means this. It means the true Christian cannot look down his nose at anyone of another faith system, of a skeptic, uh, of anybody from another background, faith or no faith. It means a Christian. You can't go on the internet comment section on Yahoo News, on Facebook, and blast people for being stupid, ridiculous. How can you not see? Oh, this seems so obvious to me. It seemed obvious. We read about Mary. Was it obvious to her? No. No, no, no. 
It means this. The main reason, the main reason you have faith today is because Jesus has opened your eyes and your heart. This truth, church, ought to produce a life-shattering humility in us and gratitude. See, Christian faith, therefore, is impossible without some level of divine intervention. But, but, it's also, at the same time, completely rational. After all, if Jesus' resurrection isn't true, Christianity falls apart in an instant. So Christianity isn't, excuse me, is more than having evidence, but it's not less either. Look, why aren't Mary, John, and Peter, you know, camped at the tomb, huh? Why aren't they camped at the tomb? You say, well, you know, the Sabbath law prevented them from being there. The Roman guard was intimidating. No. No, no, no. The reason they weren't there, you know, camped out holding an all-weekend sing-along in anticipation of the big event, you know, selling tickets to the tomb. Like the Beatles were coming back from the dead, like a reunion tour or something. They're not doing that, right? The reason they're not is because they didn't believe it was going to happen either. They didn't believe it was possible. Dr. N.T. Wright, in his book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, he makes a brilliant case for why neither the Jews nor the Greeks or the Romans thought anything like the resurrection was possible. For the Greeks and the Romans, they believed that the material world was bad. The body was bad. They want to escape the bad body. Why would they want to be resurrected back into a body that was bad, you see? The Jews, though, thought just the opposite. They thought the material world was good and that there would be a resurrection at the end of time. But they never believed that God would ever raise one person back to life, resurrect one man in the middle of history. What would be the point, right? There's going to be a resurrection at the end. And here's the point. See, we as modern people, we tend to think, oh, those ancient people, right? They're overly superstitious. And in some ways they were. So we think, ah, you know, they're gullible. They're going to believe whatever Jesus tells them, right? But the problem was they didn't. And this passage shows us. It shows us no one believed him, not even his own followers. They weren't expecting him. They saw him die, and the Gospels record they were crushed. If they believed him, they would have been here camped out at the tomb rejoicing. Here it comes, man. Can I get it on video? Woohoo! When the fireworks start. No. No one did that. Let me ask you, if you're a skeptic, what kind of evidence would you need to believe that Jesus was resurrected, hmm? What would you need as a modern person to overcome your skepticism? Here's the point. They got that as modern people in their own time, and specifically people who were preconditioned to not believe. They believed this was impossible. They didn't even come in on neutral ground, and yet they believed. Why? Oh, because they encountered the risen Jesus and what he gave them and how he showed himself to him, convinced him he was who he said he was. And that's exactly what happened to Mary. Something happened to her, right? Something happened to her. You say yes. Because she goes from having a blinded heart in one moment to nearly suffocating Jesus with this, you know, sort of chokehold on him in a moment later. What happened? All right, well, let's look. That's the second point. It's Mary's hold. Let's look at what happened to her, her encounter. And so Jesus goes on to ask her. He said, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. See, he calls her by name. Her breakthrough happens. And what does she do next? So she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, 
which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, I love this. It says, at this, she turned toward him. See, at this point, she wasn't even looking at him. She had turned away. But what broke her through? Ah, not something she saw with her eyes, right? Something she heard with her heart. She heard Jesus call her by name. The voice that called out to her so long ago was wooing her heart again. She hears it. And what's her response? She clings to Jesus. Because when Jesus says here, don't hold me, this literally means don't squeeze me so tightly. It's almost like this, Mary, you're pinching me. Ow! That kind of hurts. Mary, you're hurting me. See, why would Mary do this? Well, look at what she called him. What did she call him? It says Rabboni. Now, this literally means master or prince. The NIV says teacher, but it doesn't get it quite right. Every concordance, multiple other translations, including the old King James, get it right. Rabboni literally means master or prince. She practically chokeholds the Son of God and calls him her prince. Why? Well, who was she? Hmm? Who was Mary Magdalene? She was a person out of whom history records Jesus had driven seven demons. In other words, she had been a mentally and emotionally unstable person, perhaps almost manic. She was a borderline mental patient. Why? Well, she was from a place called Magdala, which was known as a wealthy resort town on the Sea of Galilee, where sailors would come into port, relax, and spend their money. And what have sailors, unfortunately, been known to do in port cities throughout history? Hmm? Hire prostitutes. See, to be called a Magdalene woman was like calling us, calling someone in our day, a woman of the night. You get the point. For years, this Mary had been abused in the arms of men, been reduced to the breaking point mentally and physically. She was broken, felt worthless. But then this Jesus had come to her, right, and called her. And her, his power had freed her. She abandoned her prostitution to follow this man. And then the one person, the one man who would never hurt her, would never hurt her, had gone away. Right? He was gone, dead, gone dead. No wonder she was crying. No wonder she would do anything just to get a look at his dead, rotting corpse. That's exactly what she's doing here. She's saying, angel, no angel, gardener, gardener, I'm going to see his dead body. See, but then when she realizes him he calls her name it was like every fairy tale come true except better oh every but better the prince's love had rescued her but then the prince had fallen in battle you see but now the hero had been raised back to life and the prince was back alive forever can you see why mary held him oh her sins were forgiven and jesus was alive she must have felt in this moment as the writer annie dillard put it about when she met jesus she said all my life she said i've been a bell but i never knew it until i was lifted up and rung So beautiful. See, Mary knew who Jesus was and who she was. And by the way, if you've never had this reaction to Jesus, if you've never fallen on the knees of your heart and said, oh, be my master, be my prince, it's because either you don't know who you are or you don't know who he is. See, Mary knows she's hopeless apart from him. She doesn't call him teacher. She calls him my master, my prince, back from the dead. What do you call him? See, if you only call him teacher, if you only see Jesus, use him. It's just a nice example. You've hijacked his message. The very first person here to see him resurrected from the dead doesn't just shout out, Whoa, I'm glad the teacher's back. I get some more teaching. No. Let me ask you, think about it. Is Jesus really that good of a teacher? Hold your answer. 
Is he really that good? Is he a good teacher? I want you just to consider for a moment that in one sense, yes, he's brilliant. But in another sense, he's a terrible teacher. My mother, my sister, my aunts, uncles are all teachers and educators for the most part. And in general, here's what they've told me. They say great teachers measure themselves by how well the students are able to do the teaching. A teacher may think he or she is a great teacher, but if the student can't process the information and somehow do what they've been taught, the teaching is no good. Now think about Jesus' teaching for a moment. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Can you, anyone here say they've done this totally and actually? Hmm? Anyone here meeting the needs of every other person in the room with the same energy you would love for someone to meet your needs with? No. How about this? If you lust after another person, it's adultery. If you have a seed of hate in your heart, it's like murder. Hmm? Once you begin to see that Jesus' teaching is impossible to fulfill, you ask, what kind of teaching is this? Love my neighbor as myself. Turn the other cheek. Sell my possessions. Give her to the poor. Be perfect as God the Father is perfect. This is terrible teaching. This is awful. I can't do any of this. It only makes me feel worse. See, if Jesus were just a teacher, Mary never would have had this reaction. So don't come, as C.S. Lewis said, to these resurrection accounts with some patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a nice moral example or a teacher. He's a terrible teacher if all you're looking for is moral inspiration and help. See, he's not coming as that. No, he's coming as a savior. He's coming as master. He's coming as prince. He's the only one who can fulfill the teaching, which is called the gospel, which is not that I fulfill the teaching and give God a record, but that Jesus has fulfilled the teaching and gives me his record. Mary holds him for, because she sees him for who he is. Have you? See, and if you're a Christian today, there's no fire, no zeal, no passion, no tears and holding and crying out. You've forgotten this. You've reduced Jesus to a nice teacher of sermons. You've forgotten. He is your fairy tale come true. The gospel is not at the good are in and the bad are out. No, it's the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel is, hear this, that Jesus has rescued you from his own teaching, from his own teaching. And the gospel in its totality is right, right here in this encounter. You say, how so? Well, who does Jesus choose to be the first witness of his resurrection? Hmm? Not a man, right? Peter and John were just there. Jesus hides himself and comes back when Mary shows up. He doesn't choose a man. She chooses a woman, you may know, whose testimony was considered suspect, inadmissible in a court of law in the first century. And she's not just any woman. She's a reformed mental patient, a former prostitute, not an educated, smart person, an uneducated person. What's he doing? Why does Jesus choose her? Put it like this. He's just picking up where he left off. Just picking up where he left off. Because all through the Bible, oh, this is the kind of person God chooses and uses. It's not proud Cain, is it? It's humble little Abel. It's not the hunter, manly Esau. No, it's mama's boy, Jacob. Gideon! He can only win with 300 men, not the 10,000 he thought he needed. It's not the life of Samson that saves Israel. It's the death of Samson. It's not, in the end, mighty Egypt or Babylon through whom the Messiah comes. No, it's tiny, insignificant Israel. And the perfect and true Israelite Jesus wasn't born to royalty. No, but to poor parents. He didn't have a high society baby shower. 
We had a one baby born this last week, Beth and Dan Allen's baby. Another one I think in labor today, I've heard. We've got about 30 pregnant women here in this church. It seems that way. And you all have lovely baby showers, and you should. What did Jesus get? Raggedy shepherds, stinking of sheep. Congratulations, that's you, right? See, what kind of story and message is this? It's the fairy tale come true. God's great rescue plan announced to Abraham, glimpsed by the prophets now fulfilled in Jesus, that God in Jesus is redeeming the whole world, and he's inviting those who would come to him as Mary does. See, to use them in playing a part. Do you see him for who he is? Do you see you for who you are? If so, you'll hold him like Mary held him. But, but church, as great as this moment is, and it is a great one, she didn't know it. Oh, but Jesus was about to promise something even greater for her and for us. What was it? Number three, let's look at, finally, Mary's hope, her hope. Can you picture the scene here? Mary becomes the first Christian, right? I mean, she has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, puts her faith in him. In the middle of doing this, though, Jesus essentially says, this is nice. This is nice, Mary. I've got something better for you. What was it? It's this. He says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What's he talking about? Well, Mary's holding him. In effect, she's saying, oh, I've lost you once. I'm not going to lose you again. But Jesus is telling her, when I ascend, you won't ever have to worry about that again. What's he talking about? Something called the ascension, which took place 40 days later when the disciples last laid their eyes on Jesus and they watched him rise into heaven. You think, well, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. That's only because we don't grasp what Jesus is saying here. Do you understand? He's saying that what's better than holding him near is having him go. That's what he's saying. What's better for you today even than having him near? right, is having him go. How could this be? Well, to ascend is not just to, you know, to go up and leave the surface of the earth. No, to ascend means to go up on a throne, as in the king, a king ascends unto his throne. See, Jesus isn't just going up in the sky. He's returning to heaven with a capital H, and when he does this, actually later in Acts chapter 1, you see he physically rises from the earth, which he had never done before, one and only time. So why did he rise, hmm? Why not just vanish? Poof, he's gone, right? Because Jesus is showing now spiritually, excuse me, physically, what had happened spiritually. He now, oh, the unique God-man, fully human, fully divine, is now going to take his place to be the new king and head of the human race. And this right here, church, is where Christianity pushes us to the limits of our imagination, of our theology, in the very best of ways. Jesus is saying to Mary, you can't keep me here. I've got a throne to go up on. I've got a throne to ascend. See, if he'd only remained in one place at one time, he could have said, Mary, if you only have me here, we can still be separated again. Someone could put you in prison. You could be lost. But now, if I go, you can have me forever. He's saying, now if I return to the right hand of God, all limitations pass away. And I can send, he will say, the Holy Spirit into the world to speak to our hearts. Oh, church, that's what we need. Remember Mary. She didn't receive Christ when she just saw the evidence. No. 
It was when he spoke to her. And now we have a king, church, because of what he's done on the cross, who's sending his Holy Spirit into all the earth to speak to our hearts. The ascension, therefore, doesn't mean the loss of intimacy with him, the loss of access to him, the diminishing of his power. No, it means the magnification of all of these. And that's what the Apostle Paul, throughout the epistles, and specifically in the book of Ephesians, says, this is what's happening. He's trying to wave a huge red flag, white flag, whatever kind of flag. doesn't matter. Tricolor flag, those of you from Hispanic background. Stars and stripes, great. Any kind of flag to get your attention. This is what the ascension means. He says, Paul says, when Christ ascended, God raised him from the dead, seated him where? At his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that's invoked, he's trying to get your attention. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. What? For who? For the what? You can read it. The church. For the church. That means because he's ascended, he's ruling all of history and moving it toward his final goal. Final goal. The Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. When the people of God are renewed and the world is healed. In other words... As one commentator put it, Jesus here, as he goes up, he's launching his cosmic transition plan. Cosmic transition plan. And it means this. He is working out all things for your good right now. All things for your good right now. This is incredible. No matter what you're going through, he's working it into his plan right now. Everything in history, church, is working for you. Let me show you what I mean. Some of you may know I went to the University of Houston because I was a national merit scholar, which means, as you may know, I scored at a certain level on the SAT. U of H just happened to be one of the only schools in the country to give full scholarships to national merit scholars. So it was free for me to go to. Praise the Lord. And my parents said thank you as well. They're here today, by the way. I was also recruited to play baseball there. So I was both a jock and a nerd at the same time. So I show up to play baseball at U of H. Although I've been recruited by one coach after I committed to the team, they just happened to fire the old coach and bring a new coach in. The new coach, of course, knows nothing about me. Even though I was recruited to play second base, he sticks me out literally, literally in left field behind the other left fielder, a guy named Chris, who just happened to be the only Christian on the team. And day after day, he witnessed to me. And he just happened to be a part of this little group at U of H, which we have here at UT, called Every Nation campus and I showed up one night and Jesus changed my life spoke to my heart and one of the other 12 students there that night just happened to be a girl from Southern California and that just happens to be my wife Carrie and I found out later I actually scored the lowest possible score on that test to get the National Merit Scholarship which means if I had bubbled B instead of A or C instead of D on one test I took one day my junior year of high school when I wasn't thinking about God or caring about him at all, I wouldn't have gone to scholarship, wouldn't have gone to Houston to play for the new coach who changed my position, wouldn't have been influenced by Chris, wouldn't have gone to the meeting where I met Jesus and my wife on the same night. But it gets even better. I only qualified in Texas. In Texas, not in another state where my score wouldn't have been valid. Why was I in Texas? I was in Texas because my father had relocated our family from Washington, D.C., gotten a job working for EDS, Electronic Data Systems. Do you know what EDS did? They put together business plans for companies. They work with computers and telephones. Now, do you like Christ Community Church? Hmm? Is it ministered to you? Maybe made a difference in the city? Great. 
Well, then the computer and the telephone were invented for you. (laughs) They were invented just for you. That's how that whole thing works. See, Jesus is ruling from heaven right now for his church. All things are for his church. And if you understand that, oh, it changes how you see your life, how you handle your life right now. How so? Like this. The first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen, at the end of his life, as he's being stoned for, being preaching, about, for preaching about Jesus, says he looked up and he saw this. He saw the result of the ascension. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw what? The glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, Stephen sees Jesus not just sitting, oh, but standing for him, ever living to make intercession for him. And as he died, his friends recorded his face, looked like an angel's. See, he handles the most difficult, ridiculously evil circumstance with grace, glory, stature, aplomb. Why? Because he understood what Mary's hope was. Jesus ascended now on the judgment seat of history. It didn't matter how people around him were treating him, right, in that moment. No, it didn't matter how an earthly court spoke about him. It only mattered what the heavenly court thought. The heavenly court said. The heavenly court meant, right, he could forgive even his enemies as they were killing him. Stephen understood Mary's hope. Do you? Do you? Are you living like that? Do you have an intimacy greater than Mary had? Hmm? Sometimes I feel like I do. Sometimes I feel like I don't. But I know it's possible. I know it's possible. Are you unsinkable in the middle of your trial right now? Hmm? You can be. You can be. Oh, are you able to drop your offense against the person who's hurt you? Let the pain go. You can. If you have what Mary had. That offense, it's actually for you. It's for you. The pain is for you. If you see what Stephen saw, Jesus crucified, resurrected at the right hand of the Father. And if he's ruling history, hear this. If Jesus is ruling history, oh, he hasn't forgotten you. How much more can he rule your life right now? If you'll allow him, let's pray as we close. Oh, Father, we come now in Jesus' name, thanking you for the power of this. Oh, we want to be close to you as Mary was. Lord, you said it was better if you went away, if you ascended. We could have even more than Mary had. Even more than Mary had. Not just having you near, but having you in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for all those who are here. Lord, no matter what we're going through, Jesus, you promise us. Lord, in this world we'll have trouble, but take heart. You've overcome it. And church, if that's you this morning, if you're, if you're here and you're struggling with a circumstance, you say, I don't see how this can be even working for my good, but I'm asking God to open the eyes of my heart this morning and show me, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you today. Oh, yes. So many of us going through it. We've either been through it, we're going through it, or we're on our way to it. And Lord, we just look now, ask you for a moment to open our eyes as Stephen's were, to see you standing for us, standing for us. Lord, you're standing for me, Morgan, right now, for Carrie, for Jim, Amy, whoever, Lord, for us, standing for us. Lord, would you allow us to see that, that truth? 
Lord, if you're ruling history, how much more are you active in our lives? It's for the church. If you're here this morning, you're saying, you know what? I need Jesus. I need his Holy Spirit to stir up passion and zeal and a fire in me for things of God. I've maybe come to see Jesus as just his teacher. I've forgotten he's my prince, my fairy tale come true. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Oh, Lord, I pray for these. Lord, let us not forget you are who you are. Oh, not just a teacher, our Savior. Rabboni, we call you that this morning. We say it, Rabboni, we love you. Thank you for being our hero. Come back to life. Lord, we press in now. We take these next moments you've given us. Lord, you've been working here, preparing hearts all week just for now. Lord, we desire to press in close to you, to hold you, to have you. Your nearness is our good. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.